I hope you'll take your Bibles or find one around you. We're in Isaiah chapter 61. Man, I look forward to Advent for six months, and I can't believe we are already to the final Sunday. My hope as we go to the Word this morning is that we will be reminded of why we should celebrate this week, of what we have to celebrate, and of why the coming of Christ into the world is, in fact, good news. That's where Isaiah 61 is going to take us. But before we jump in, I want to start by telling you about another sermon that someone else preached on Isaiah 61. And I have to be honest with you, it's a better sermon than the one that I can preach for you this morning. It's just better. There's no way I can do what this other preacher did. But I want to tell you about it. And I think it will help us as we go to Isaiah. So let me set the scene for you, the scene of when this other preacher, a better preacher, preached a sermon on Isaiah 61. It's actually back in the first century in a Jewish synagogue in the region of Galilee in the city of Nazareth. Remember Nazareth? This is the hometown of Christ. And just like we gather every week to hear the word read and explained, the people of God during that day, they'd come together every week in the synagogue to hear the scriptures read and explained. Their gatherings were different in that there wasn't a, any regular preacher, but every week a different person would get up and read and open the word. They would have rabbis come in or, or someone from the city. And one week, the person who was selected to handle the reading and teaching of the scriptures was a hometown boy named Jesus. This is early in his ministry. This is before many people in his town really knew anything about him other than the fact that he is Mary and Joseph's son. It's his turn. The text is Isaiah 61. Now remember, and this, this just boggles my mind every time I think about it, that the scriptures that Jesus had and read are in large part the same scriptures that we have and read. What we have is our Old Testament. This was the Bible of the Jewish people. So 2,000 years ago, we have the people of God reading the same scriptures we're reading, and they're scriptures that point, by and large, to coming salvation, this coming hope. Remember, this is a nation marked by suffering. In Isaiah's time, living in exile. They've experienced the consequences of their sins. And yet, they have the promises of God. In particular, they have this promise that God is going to send a redeemer. God's going to send someone who will deliver his people and lead them into a time of joy and rest and peace. People like you and me, can, can we do that? Is it hard for you? hard for me to go back and realize that the people sitting in that synagogue that day are flesh and blood people like you and me, right? Who, who had struggles, who worked hard every day and probably came into synagogue tired, familiar with heartache, sleepless nights, but a people who maybe showed up that morning longing, God, would you fulfill your promises? Here they are 
another Sabbath day, and Jesus, the son of Joseph, stands up and reads a portion of Isaiah 61. Maybe some people were paying attention. Maybe some were heavy-eyed. Maybe some were distracted. But here's Christ reading the scriptures. And maybe it's a text that he chose, or perhaps it was just the next text on the schedule. We don't know for sure, but either way, Christ uses this opportunity to share a message unlike any other that had ever been shared in any synagogue before. I'm not making this up. It's a story recorded in Luke chapter 4. Let me just read parts of it for you. Luke 4, starting in verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's where he starts reading from Isaiah chapter 61. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. That's what he reads. And we're going to unpack that more in a few minutes. But just think about where we've been. This is Isaiah quoting one who he calls a servant of the Lord, the one who God has promised to send to rescue his people. And in this passage, the servant is making these announcements. He's saying there's good news. People are going to be set free. Salvation is coming for the people of God. It's a quick summary. We'll dive in, but that's a quick summary of what Jesus reads. And then verse 20 says, Jesus rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. And all the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, this is where it helps to have some idea of the custom. What would happen is the reader would stand up. He would read. He would set the scroll aside and then he would sit down, which isn't a bad custom. The teacher sits down. And so it's not that they all looked at him because, wow, he read so well. They look at him because now it's your turn. Tell us what the scriptures say. He says this. Luke 4.21, Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, perhaps there was more to what he said. Maybe he unpacks Isaiah 61. Luke may not have given us everything he said, but he does give us the most important part, and it's possible this is all he said. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, or today, this passage is coming true right in front of you. It's Christ's way of saying, Isaiah 61, it's about me. I'm the one sent by God, sent to bring freedom, sent to give sight, sent for salvation. When you read Isaiah 61, you're reading about me and what I've come to do. And oh, to be a fly in the wall that Sabbath morning. To have heard the conversations afterwards. We get some of them in the text. If you keep reading, people say, isn't this Joseph's boy? 
And yet, I don't think they fully understood. How could they have fully understood what he was saying? We have an advantage. What we know, and we can go back to Isaiah 61 and read it through different eyes. We know it's an announcement of why Jesus came, of why he was born in Bethlehem, of why he lived the life he lived, of why he died the death he died. I guess we could say it's a message that Jesus preached twice. Because we believe he was speaking through Isaiah, proclaiming this message. I always wondered if he can re reuse sermons. Christ did. He preached it through Isaiah, and then in Nazareth on the Sabbath morning, he preaches Isaiah 61 in a beautiful way and says, Today, in front of you, it's fulfilled. Isaiah 61 is a message about what Jesus came to accomplish. And as we enter the week of Christmas, here's what I want you to know. We're going to go through Isaiah 61, consider the mission of Christ, consider what he's come to do for us. And my hope is that this would launch us into a week where we can say, yes, I have so much to celebrate. Because Jesus came, I have hope. Because Jesus came, I have a reason for joy, no matter what my year has looked like. There's a lot in this passage, only three verses, but so much for us to consider. Isaiah chapter 61, we're just going to look at the first three verses. I hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God may be glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. It was true when Isaiah wrote it. It was true when Christ proclaimed it. And it's a message that we get to hear and receive this morning. Now, here's part of my struggle this week, thinking about this passage. Because Jesus quotes it and applies it when and where he does, it could be very easy for us just to jump into this and kind of forget all about Isaiah or the context of Isaiah and just hear the words of Christ. And there's a sense in which that is justified. But I also think it's helpful for us to remember the people who heard this first. A people living in exile a people who know what it's like to experience in a physical, tangible way the consequences of their sins. As we read the passage, we see it's written for a people who are poor in spirit, brokenhearted, wanting freedom, living in mourning. And just those phrases, this is a description of the status of the national situation for the people of God in the time of Isaiah. If you've been with us, though, you know that while the people of God are living in judgment, living in exile, experiencing all these things, 
the hope of Isaiah, he's pointing forward saying salvation is coming, joy, peace, rest is coming. And we could read this in Isaiah 61 and hear a promise of God to a people about restoration and about land. What we've seen as we've been in Isaiah the past month is that this announcement goes beyond ethnic Israel and it goes deeper than a physical salvation of a nation. God is announcing his plan for changing hearts. It's a plan for saving a people who have been enslaved by sin and experienced those consequences. It's a plan for those who are broken and hurting because of the brokenness of the world. It's a plan for people who are grieving and mourning because all they see is the hopelessness of what's right in front of them. Man, I see myself in some of those descriptions. We need what Isaiah 61 says that Jesus came to bring. So start in verse 1. First, we have this description of the one who's coming. This description of how God prepared Christ, the servant of the Lord, for his ministry. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And if you've been with us, this is our fourth servant song and the fourth time our passage has begun this way. With the spirit of the Lord being given. So we won't spend long here, but what I want you to remember at this point is that the story of Christmas is the story of God, the one who we sing holy, holy, holy about, God himself, sovereign over all things, sends his son to be born of a man, to live among us. Jesus comes into the world, and he's not just a man. He's God in flesh, sent on a mission by God the Father, empowered by the Spirit. And if you're a theology nerd like me, verses like this get me excited, because what we have here in one verse is Father, Son, and Spirit all working together. God the Father is sending God the Son who's indwelt and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And all of that should be a reminder to us. Everything else we're going to read in this passage, it's backed by the power of God. If you have any question at any point, if it's true or possible, remember this is a mission. Planned by God, performed through the Son, empowered by the Spirit, which means it cannot fail. What's the mission? Let's keep reading. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The way the verbs line up, I think this first statement, to bring good news to the poor, is an overarching message about his mission. Everything else in the passage flows out of this. It describes what this looks like. Jesus sent to bring good news to the poor, a message of good news to a people who are in need of good news. It's a message for those who are poor. What do you think about when you hear poor? Like I think of myself, right? Um, we, we think often of those who are, are financially um, taxed, those who are struggling to make ends meet. Well, let's take that imagery and realize he's not just talking about those who are poor financially, but he's describing anyone who's lacking. Those who don't have what they need. It comes with a sense of helplessness, a sense that I'm unable to fix this situation. 
And of course, this is how the Bible describes us apart from Christ. Born in sins, enemies of God, living in ways that show how unable we are to fix our own situation. When it comes to your standing before Christ, you, friend, are the poor. And so am I. We don't have what we need. We need help. We're unable to provide for ourselves. But this is the mission that God the Father sends the Son on with the power of the Holy Spirit. He sends him with good news for the poor. He's coming to do what we can't do for ourselves. He's coming to help. Let me just pause here. This is where in my notes I have a parenthesis. And I want to say this. That maybe this morning you don't look at your life, this season of time, you don't think poor, brokenhearted, enslaved, or grieving. Because this has been a great year. It's not me. What I want to remind you of this morning before we go any further is that on your best day and in your best year, you're still the poor. We all need Christ. And maybe on the days when we think we don't are the days we need him the most. This morning, I want you to consider how weak you really are, how in need of help you are. And my guess is for most of us, I know your stories, I know your lives, you know, my, we don't have to work very hard to be reminded of our need. Jesus has been sent with good news for the poor, and here's what he's going to do. We see it at the end of verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted. Why? Well, often we're brokenhearted because of our own sin and the consequences of our sin. Sometimes it's because we live with other sinners who sin against us, which is heartbreaking. Sometimes it's just because we live in a world that's cursed by sin and we get the effects of it. There are so many ways our hearts can become beaten and broken. Like I said, sometimes we do it to ourselves. We're disobedient. We make choices that lead to pain and regret. We do things we shouldn't do. We neglect the things that we should do. And all those things add up. And have you ever laid in bed at night and thought, man, I've gone too far. And you feel the brokenheartedness. Or maybe it's not just the things you've done, but maybe it's what other people have done to you. We get sinned against by someone we love who we thought we could trust. We feel neglected by people we expected more from. It can cause this state of brokenheartedness that maybe you've felt. Sometimes it's just normal life, financial struggles, sickness, bodies that break down, storms, wars, viruses, political unrest, all these things, we feel the weight of it. And so there's a sense in which all of us can kind of know what it means to be brokenhearted. Some of us granted more than others. But this is a passage about hope. He says, Jesus comes to bind up the brokenhearted. Bind up, it's a medical term. Bandage up, there's an open wound that needs ointment and needs to be wrapped. 
And the picture is of Jesus coming to someone who has a gaping wound, and he is going to be the one who binds it up. Think about the, the intimacy of that, the care of that, the love of that. Jesus comes to bind up the brokenhearted. To heal those who are brokenhearted because of their own sin. To heal those who are, have wounds caused by other people's sins. To heal those who have wounds because they live in a fallen world. And yet this is the hope of Christmas. Jesus has come to bind up the brokenhearted. We should be thankful that Jesus comes to bring healing. There's more. Not only does he come to bring healing, but he sets us free from the things that cause the pain. Like I said, so much of our brokenheartedness comes from the fact that we are sinners, living with sinners in a sin-cursed world. But the hope of Christmas is that Jesus came to conquer that sin and to set us free from the captivity of sin. You see that connection? Brokenhearted because of sin, he comes to bind us up and to care for the wounds. But not just to bind us up and lead us to get hurt again, but he also comes to set us free from the sin that caused the wounds in the first place. Verse 1 again. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I said it last week. These passages are fantastic because I don't have to come up with the illustrations. They're, they're, they're here. They're, they're built into the text. The Bible describes people imprisoned by sin, in chains, and bound up. Can I ask you, you don't have to raise your hand, but do you know that feeling of feeling like, and I'm, I'm chained up by my sin? It's what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Remember this passage? He says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Oh, right? Been there? Jesus came to set free those who are held captive by their sins. This is what Paul knew. This is why a few verses after the ones I just read, this is what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows Christ is the only one who can break us free. It's this message of prisoners being released. He's come to proclaim liberty. He announces liberty and then he opens the doors. It's one thing to get an announcement of freedom. It's another thing to see that door open and know I am free. And I want to keep coming back to this. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It's not just a celebration of a baby being born, although that's part of it. It's a celebration that God came to earth to bring healing and freedom to people who have been hurt and imprisoned by sin. As I get older, the songs I like at Christmas have changed. One of my favorite songs right now says, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. He says this, From our fears and sins release us. 
let us find our rest in thee. Man, I, I get that. I, I know the fear. I know the sin. And that prayer, come Jesus, release us from these things. Right? This is the message of Christmas. He came to bring freedom and rest. This all started when he came the first time. When Jesus came, this new period began when the gospel would be proclaimed in a way it never had before. Because Jesus came, we have this message of grace, this message of salvation that, that we get to enjoy and we get to share with others. Look at verse 2. He says, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So he's announcing two things, a time of grace and a time of judgment. But he describes them differently. It's the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's judgment. What's the year of the Lord's favor? Well, I believe we're living in it right now. He said when he came, this is fulfilled. And I believe we started when he came, this year of the Lord's favor. After his death, all who come to him in faith will be saved. We are in what's called the, the era of grace, this age of grace. A time when hearts can be mended, chains can be taken off. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved something we can experience, something that we're called to share with others. Do you recognize, church, we are living in the time, the year of the favor of the Lord? And yet, there's a second announcement, isn't there? The day of the vengeance of God. Maybe you noticed this when we read Luke, or when I read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus stops before that. He talks about the cats being set free and the brokenhearted being bound up. And he says, he announces the year of the favor of God and he doesn't say anything about judgment. Did Jesus believe in the judgment of God? 100%. But in that setting, he was not yet coming to pronounce judgment. He was coming to announce salvation has come. It's what we read together earlier from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then we see this in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now keep reading that passage and it's clear judgment is coming. But we have this realization that the reason Jesus came the first time, that wasn't the time of judgment. He came to inaugurate, to usher in the year of the Lord's favor, this time when all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because while there is a day of judgment coming, we don't have to fear that day. We can have the hope that when judgment day comes, we will be standing with God fully reconciled, fully forgiven. And can I just remind you, friends, this is the message that you have to share. We can tell our friends, our family, that because Jesus came, because that baby was born in Bethlehem and did what he did, you can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven of your sins. You don't have to bear the penalty that you deserve. 
Verse 1 says that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. And this is the good news. Salvation has come and is coming. And this should be for us a sense of comfort. So we see at the end of verse 2. He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. I'll say it again. Not all of us have had years that we would describe as mournful. And I don't want to suggest that all of us are in seasons of grief. But I know there are those among us who would very much say that they're there. And all of us know that life comes with these seasons. And it's for times like these when this is such a hopeful promise. God has come to comfort his people. Why do we need comfort? Say it again, because we're sinners, living with sinners in a sinful world, and that takes a toll. What we know is that God came to us and he loves us in our weakness. He gave himself so that we can be comforted. And I don't think this is only a future promise. I think sometimes we can come here and think, oh, come Lord Jesus, which is a good and appropriate prayer, and that is the day of all comfort. But this is also a promise for today, that if you're in Christ, you can be comforted today, knowing that you are in the care of the sovereign God of all things, and you won't be held accountable for your sin. But there's also the future aspect, and another passage that could have made our Advent list is Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. At this point, we're thinking future. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, and full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That day's coming because Jesus came. That might be the ultimate Advent verse. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice. And friends, this Christmas, we can rejoice because we know he's come. Because he comes, has come, we know he's coming. We have reason to rejoice. He's come bringing comfort to those who are mourning. What does that look like? Wish we had an illustration of that. And verse three is fantastic. He comes to grant, I think grant comfort to those who mourn in Zion. And then he describes what that looks like. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Three illustrations that work us from the head down the body. He starts at the top. Now, this isn't a custom of ours, but it was 
in, in the Old Testament day that those who were mourning would often put dirt or ashes on their heads. It was a way of showing people they were in a time of grief, an outward display of the position of the heart. Something Job did. I'll just give you one illustration. There's quite a few we could go to, but Job chapter 2, verse 12. Job's sitting under a tree, and his friends are coming towards him, and we read, when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. What a week that would have been, right? And we get this sense of four men sitting on the ground under a tree, not saying a word, dirt, ashes on their head, clothes ripped. So let's have that image in our mind. This is what grief looks like. And yet what we're told here is that Jesus comes to wash off the ashes. And then once the head is clean, to give us a crown, a headdress to move us from a position of mourning to a position of joy. First he takes away the ashes and then he anoints us with oil. Think about getting dressed for a, a big celebration. And you go to the cabinet and you move some things aside and you pull up that special bottom, bottle of perfume that you paid more for than you should have. And it's only for special occasions. And just the smell of that ointment tells me this is a good day. Right? He says he's going to wash us, anoint us with oil. It's the opposite of putting dirt on your head. He's come to clean us up and prepare us for a time of joy. Grief is replaced with gladness. And I know that some of you have spent more than your fair share of time in torn clothes and ashes. And friend, I hope for you, even if your situation doesn't change this week, that Christmas will be a reminder that this is not the way it's always going to be. Jesus came bringing joy. And there should be a measure of that even in our times of grief, knowing who he is. He's come to trade ashes for a crown, to anoint us with an oil of gladness. And there's one more aspect of the pic picture. Verse 3, he comes to give the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And we start at the head. He cleans off the head. He gives us a, a headdress, a crown. He washes our body with great smelling ointments that tells us it's a time of joy. And then he puts on us a coat or a, a garment that he describes as a garment of praise. The way we dress can say a lot about the attitude of our heart. Not just the way we dress, but the way we carry ourselves, our demeanor. What's described here is a person of faint spirit. Most of us have been around one another long enough to have seen that in one another's faces. A, a week or a month or a season when we are living with a faint spirit. What's, what he's telling us here though is he's coming and while we've been wearing our discouragement and wearing our weariness and wearing our struggles, he has come to take off the funeral clothes and give us a garment of praise and it's a lot more than changing our outward appearance he's taking our hearts from a place of mourning to a place of joy not a superficial change but a change that's real and lasting 
He changes us from being people who are brokenhearted and imprisoned by sin. He mends us. He frees us. He comforts us. He leads us into joy. He takes us from being weak and faint to strong and steadfast. This is the promise of our God that he will do this in us. And he says that when he does this, when this process is happening and his work is happening in us, he says that people will look at us and they will call us oaks of righteousness. That's what we get there in verse 3. So that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. One more picture for us. This time the picture of a big, strong oak tree. It wasn't an oak, but when David and I were camping, we found a tree that we were both trying to reach around and we couldn't touch each other's arms when we both went around it. It wasn't going anywhere. Think about a full-grown, healthy oak tree that's been there for 200 years and it'll be there for 200 more. It's a picture of strength and stability and endurance. And the thing about trees is they don't escape the storms. Now they feel the elements. They are there for the droughts. They stand in the wind and at times the leaves get blown off and the branches get broken. But a strong tree is still standing when the storm goes away. It's a picture that Jeremiah uses. He contrasts the person who trusts in the Lord with the person who doesn't. And he says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Knowing Christ doesn't keep us out of the drought, it doesn't take the storms away, but it does give us endurance. It's for people who trust in him, who find our strength in him. And it's not something we do in ourselves. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I just don't have the energy to wash my head, to put on different clothes. I can't make myself into that tree. No, he says, this tree is a planting of the Lord. He does the work. It's his work in us and for the glory of God. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the hope of Christmas. Because he came, we can go from mourning to being called oak of righteousness. Almost done. This week I was reading about, I was just reading the Christmas story. I think my favorite scene, I'll change my mind next year. My favorite scene right now is those shepherds sitting in the dark when all of a sudden the spotlight gets turned on. It says in Luke chapter 2, the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That should be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly, it says, there was with that one angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. 
I think that sums up well what our passage has said. Why did Jesus come? We said that at the end to the glory of God. Glory to God on the highest and peace. Peace for his people. He came to proclaim good news to the poor and to mend the brokenhearted, to free prisoners and to comfort those who mourn, to make a people who are called oaks of righteousness to the glory of God. That's the end of that sermon. Now let me try to wrap up Advent in two minutes. We've spent four weeks in Isaiah. And in each of these four weeks, we've heard a lot of the same things. We've heard four announcements about the one who's coming to bring comfort and hope and salvation to his people. And these are words, friends, that were shared hundreds of years before Christ was born. Here's what I want you to leave with as we leave Advent. The prophet Isaiah announced that the servant of the Lord was coming. Isaiah announced that a virgin would give birth to a child. Isaiah announced that there would be one who would go before the servant announcing his coming. Isaiah said the servant would proclaim salvation and judgment, that he'd bring comfort and peace, that he would be humble, afflicted, despised, rejected. Isaiah said that the servant would be beaten and died. He would be like a lamb led to his slaughter. Isaiah said all those things. And they happened. From the virgin birth, to the John the Baptist saying, prepare the way, to the rejection and death, it all happened just as Isaiah had written. And yet, there is more that Isaiah said. Isaiah announced comfort, hope, peace, and salvation, and that God is saving a people who will live with him forever. And here's the point. This week, as we look back and remember that Christ came, we say, Isaiah said he was coming and he came. Let me tell you, Isaiah said he's coming and there's going to be joy and peace and comfort forever. So if you're feeling like the broken-hearted prisoner in a season of mourning, know that there is healing and freedom and comfort available and that just as Christ has come, he will come again. I haven't given you any homework, have I? Finish out Isaiah 61. I'll, I'll do part of it for you now. After every one of the servant songs, we have a song of praise. I think this song of praise is a fitting way for us to end our Advent time. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Like a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, like a bride adorns herself with jewels. As the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise that will sprout up before all nations. He has come. He is coming. Take heart, church. Salvation is coming.